Today's first reading will be taken from Psalm 69. For the director of music, to the tune of Lilies, of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are the enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. O O Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor. In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I look for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. I am in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servant will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. The second reading for today is coming from Acts 1, 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they were upstairs in the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer. 
along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brother, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was one of the numbered and shared in the ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his days be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is God's word. Because God has already written the script for this drama. He's written it in the Psalms, the Psalms that uh, we read, one of them, Psalm 69. Another one will be quoted, Psalm 109. And do you see there in verse 20? That's where this talk of place first comes from. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. The second part of verse 20 is a quote from another Psalm. May another take his place. So that, that's the first thing that I think will help us, is that all this talk of number and place comes from a script, if you like, that God has written beforehand for this drama that's being played out. Now, now the second thing to see is that in this script, in this drama, there are two main characters, and they are not Judas and Matthias. Matthias is the one who fills Judas's place, but he's not the key character. Now, you see, in the drama that God has written in advance, there are two key characters. One is the anointed of God, God's chosen Davidic king, and the other is the one who persecutes that anointed king. It is Judas. The two key characters in this drama are Jesus and Judas. mightn't seem like that when we first read it, but the Psalms spoke prophetically of a drama. We'll, we'll have a look at Psalm 69. It spoke of a drama now played out in which the fortunes of Jesus, the anointed of God, they're bound up, they're meshed together for a time with those of Judas. And they're so pegged together that we're to see that when Judas suffers shame, as we'll see he does, it can only mean that Jesus Christ, whose fortunes are pegged together with him, well, he, he enjoys honor. He receives honor from God. And uh, in a moment, we will, uh, we will turn to Psalm 69. But let's come together now to verses 12 to 20, where I want us to see that in this number 11 and in Judas's deserted place, God is proving to us that he's removed shame from Jesus Christ. Uh, we pick up in verse 12 where, where we left off. Uh, but the thing that starts to stand out as soon as Jesus has ascended where we left off last week, something that stands out that didn't stand out so much before, but now everywhere someone looks, all they see is this thing, and it is an odd number. There's 11. 
So the first thing after Jesus has ascended, when the apostles return and they go into the upper room and they get back to Jerusalem about a mile and a half away and they go up into the upper room and what's the first thing that happens? Well, Luke gives us a roll call of who's there. And it's not so much a roll call, as I said, of who's there, but of who isn't there. There are 11. There used to be 12, and now there's only 11, and it's now starting to stand out, stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, what, do you, what does it mean that there are 11? How do you interpret the fact that someone was once in their intimate inner circle who betrayed Jesus? I mean, what do you make of insider betrayal? What do you make of the fact that the person that God approves of, Jesus of Nazareth, well, he, he brought 12 into his circle in those heady days when John the Baptist left the scene and, and Jesus came to the scene and there was great hope and he, he gathered around him 12 people. But one of them, when he offered friendship, turned out to give him a curse instead. He, he held out his hands and gave him good and this man betrayed him with evil. He became, in verse 16, we're told, a guide for those who arrested him. He brought soldiers to arrest and ultimately to kill Jesus. What do we make of that insider betrayal? What do we make of the fact that there's a number 11 when there was once 12? Well, Peter knows uh, exactly what it means, and he's going to stand up and tell us. And do you notice that you know, everywhere we see this odd number, so Luke tells us just before Peter speaks, he says there were 120 there, a multiple of 12. It's as though it's rubbing it in. This is Peter, one of 11, now speaking to a crowd who they've got 12 written all over them. But Peter's about to explain to us what it means. And he says this, verse 16, in effect, it was always God's plan and purpose that there would be a traitor in the midst of his anointed king. God had written the script of this drama, Peter says beforehand, so that the Holy Spirit, amazing to think, the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophet David, who wrote the Psalms that we, uh, that we read. He spoke about Judas. He spoke about Judas in advance. Judas who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Judas who offered friendship, or Jesus who offered friendship, and Judas repaid him with a curse. So uh, Peter says, verse 16, now the betrayal of an insider, someone who was numbered among us, someone who was at one of the 12 who had a share in this ministry. Now, that was always part of God's plan. But the thing that you're to understand about the number 11, the fact that he's no longer here, is that God's drama has moved on. It has moved on to the next scene. And so we come to uh, verse 18, which Luke gives us. It's the sort of story every little boy delights in delights to tell about the guts and the gore. I killed him a field of blood. It's the one that every uh, adult probably winces at. And it is, let's face it, an estate agent's nightmare. It is that bit of unsellable land that you can never get rid of. Verse 18. With the reward Judas got for his wickedness, he bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open. All his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they call that field in their language a keldama, that is field of blood. So you can, uh, you can just imagine it. The summer intern comes into the Jerusalem estate agents. He's very eager. He's been told he's a great salesman, even though he's 16. He comes in. And uh, the old hands in the office, they, uh, they look knowingly at each other and they throw a file to him. And it's marked a keldama. And they say, it'd be great. If you, if you could sell this property, we'll guarantee you a job. Straight out of school. You don't need to go to university. You come straight in. You'll have real talent. You'll prove that. Go and sell this property, a Keldama. So he goes out, he takes them, uh, a young couple, a young married couple looking to build a, a new house on a, on a plot of land. He takes them out to a Keldama, a lovely little field uh, just overlooking Jerusalem. 
It's on the outskirts of the city. And he says, this, is, this would be a wonderful home. You're using it for a, a family home. You're just married. This would be perfect. You could build your house right here. It's within easy striking distance of the city. You could commute. It's got a great view. And he said, and what's more, we can guarantee there are no encumbrances here. There are no restrictive covenants that are going to come up and bite you. Now, the, the previous owner had no heirs. No one's going to come with a probate claim, an inheritance claim. Now, we can sell this property full and free. It's yours. It's a wonderful fit. And the couple look at each other and they think, wow, how long has it been on the market? A few, a few months. A few months. We say, well, why is that? Oh, I don't know, really. Well, what's it called again? A caldama. What does that mean? Field of blood. It's not that Iscariot bit of land, is it? It's not that Judas, you know, the, it's not that, is it? Say, so I, I think it is, yeah, okay. I think we've heard enough. You see, the guts and the gore, it was a stain and uh, a shame that just wouldn't go away. It guaranteed that that bit of land wouldn't sell, that the for sale sign wouldn't be taken down. Now, the gore guaranteed that no one would ever go near that property. It would never be sold. No one would ever dare to live in it. I mean, blood is, uh, has a way of doing that, of keeping people away. I remember uh, about 500 yards from where I grew up, there was this beautiful house on a hill overlooking some beautiful fields in the river nearby. And I remember when I was very young hearing the story that actually the reason the property was now derelict uh, was because the owner had interrupted a burglar in the night and the burglar had stabbed them, killed them. The person had died. And the property hadn't been sold. And uh, I could never walk past that house without walking very quickly. Um, it always gave me the creeps. And then a few weeks ago, actually, I, I passed that house again. And uh, it was decorated. I think it had been sold on. And it, it looked beautiful. It had been done up. But for me, nothing had changed. All I could think about was that murder, that blood, that murky affair that happened all those years ago. Blood is a habit of doing that. It's a stain that, that doesn't wash away. And everyone in Jerusalem knew about a Akeldonai. Everybody knew about it. And that was very important because it guaranteed that Judas's place would be deserted. And Peter says something very interesting in verse 20. He says, this shows that God's plan has been advanced. The fact that this man moved from a place among the apostles to this place that no one will touch or dwell in, it shows that God has answered the prayer request of his anointed, ultimately Jesus Christ. God has answered his prayer request. Verse 20, we get the quote, the, the request from the suffering anointed of God. May his place, may my betrayer, my traitor's place be deserted that no one would dwell in it, and now it is. I wonder if you could uh, just pick up your Bibles and turn back very briefly with me to Psalm 69. Page 583. Actually, we will flick over the page to page 584. We'll not be here long. I simply want us to see what is being said. I simply want us to see that it is the anointed of God who is praying this prayer. And when it's, when it's answered, God is answering his anointed. So have a look. Do you see in verse 19 of Psalm 69? God's anointed king, whose suffering, his suffering servant says, You know, God, you know I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Oh, at this moment of suffering and persecution, betrayal and death, shame, if you like, is being heaped upon him by his traitor Judas. 
And then from verses 22 to 28, we get this word may, may, may repeated. It's a petition, a request to God. And he is saying, look, God, vindicate me. Prove to me ultimately that shame does not rest on my head. Prove to me that you hear me. Answer me in my suffering. And the proof will be that their place will be deserted. May their place be deserted. May shame move from my head to his head. That's what the anointed is praying. We'll come back to Acts chapter 1. And so we see that now that prayer request has been answered. Now Judas is in his proper place. We know God has proven it to us that he has answered Jesus of Nazareth. In his suffering and dishonor, he has answered him and he has said, no, shame doesn't rest on the head of you who is betrayed and who is dying on the cross. Shame instead rests on the head of Judas. Now Judas is in his proper place. We know that shame no longer rests on Jesus. Now, I think this is, um, this is very important, very powerful for us to grasp because there's still a stigma and a shame attached somehow to Jesus of Nazareth. And so it'll be important for us as followers that we expect this, that we know it, and we know how to interpret it. So a, a couple of months ago, I, I was in Finsbury Park with a friend. It was a beautiful sunny day. It was before the heat wave, but it was one of those odd sunny days. And uh, we were sitting in Finsbury Park, and now this friend of mine, he uh, was converted uh, to become a Christian three years ago from, um, from a Muslim background. And he wasn't quite disowned, but he had a very tough time from his family. And uh, we were sitting there in Finsbury Park. And about 50 yards away, there was a group of 20 or 25 uh, Muslim teenagers and guys in their 20s. And we were sitting down on the, on the grass. We were having a Bible study. And this guy wandered over from the, the group. He saw us sitting there. And he wandered over. And he looked a bit curious. He wandered a bit closer. And, uh, and he said, what are you doing? And we said, well, we're Christians. We're reading the Bible. And he said, what are you doing that for? And we said, well, God has told us. The all-perfect, all-powerful God has, has told us about himself through Jesus Christ. And immediately, immediately, he erupted. He said, no, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. The all, you're right. The all-powerful, all-perfect God. That's what God's like. But he doesn't associate himself with that man, born of Mary. He suffered. And of course, Muslims don't believe that Jesus was crucified. It's unworthy even for a prophet, never mind God himself. And the issue for him was that how could God possibly associate himself with all the, the humility and the shame and the stigma of Jesus Christ and all that he went through? And this had been very powerful in the past for my friends. It was something he'd still battled with, something he was, the accusations that he would still face from Muslims. But there's something of that as well for each of us who follow Jesus Christ. There's something about owning the name Jesus of Nazareth that can make us feel vulnerable. So uh, if we call ourselves a Christian today, that doesn't usually bring with it a stigma or shame. I heard this week uh, David Cameron doing one of his Cameron Direct things. I don't know if you've come across this. this. is where he goes around and he's, you know, he's at the coalface. He's the man of the people. And he goes around and he speaks to school kids or students and uh, he interacts with them. And they can ask any question and it's great because, of course, it's unscripted. And uh, someone asked him a question about what he thought of certain words of Jesus Christ. And he was thrown. He was flummoxed. And he, he began by saying, I've never been asked a question like that uh, on, uh, on this, um, on Cameron Direct. It's never come to me like that. But he did say, I am, look, I'm a Christian. 
know, he, he owned the name of Christian, but then he began in the rest of the conversation to distance himself from a number of things that Jesus said. And he said, I can't stand by it all, but I find some things are helpful. But you see, that is true that there is usually something for people, something about the whole experience, the whole teaching, the words, the actions of Jesus Christ that come with a certain stigma and shame. And people wonder, has God really associated himself with this man? And the very powerful thing that this passage enables us to do is to interpret shame and dishonor. Because God has said, no, no shame is allowed to attach to Jesus Christ. I have put it on Judas's head, which means I have approved of Jesus and his death. Though it looked bloody and shameful, no, God says to us, no, this is salvation. Not shame, but salvation. That's the other means that we're given to understand Jesus' death. So in, uh, in that same Psalm 69 and verse 32, towards the end of the Psalm, it says, May the poor, or the poor and the needy, those who seek God, who long to see God, well, they will be glad. They will see God's anointed and be glad. They will see something very different. And we're to see something very different in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're to distinguish, if you like, this morning from the blood of Golgotha shed on the cross and the blood of a Keldama in this field of blood. We're to remember actually what this different blood does. The blood of Judas, it doesn't matter how many times you mow that lawn over that field, the stain doesn't get washed away. But God, in answering Jesus Christ, answering his anointed's prayer, has said yes to Jesus. He's not ashamed of anything of Jesus, including his death. And he says to us, no, this blood is very different. It's the blood that washes stains away, not that keeps them there. Now, the answer to how God has ultimately answered Jesus Christ and his prayer request, if you like, is in his resurrection. That's the ultimate yes, the ultimate vindication from God. And we're going to see that in verses, the end of verse 20 to 26 now. Because in a sense, it's artificial to divide this passage. So I want us to see as we look at these verses that the filled place now, the replacement of Judas, proves that God, it's proof from God that he's bestowed honor on Jesus. Uh, Now, I didn't say this when we looked at Psalm 69, but uh, one way of understanding it is a bit like a seesaw. It's a bit of a seesaw, so the the key characters, Judas and Jesus, are on it. And uh, when Judas goes down to shame, you know for sure that Jesus must be restored to honor. You know that he must be honored. If Judas is shamed, he must be honored. And so that's what Peter knows. Peter understands that that's what it's like. And so there's no gap, no breath between those quotations in verse 20. Peter goes straight on and says, yes, if Judas's fortunes were tied up with Jesus's like a seesaw, that must mean that Jesus has been raised to honor. There must now be a testimony. There must be proof. There must be vindication. Let the whole world know that God has vindicated and honored Jesus. And so come to uh, verse 20, where we're, we get this quote. It's from a different psalm, but it's the same theme. We won't turn it up. It's the same theme, the same story that's being told. And it says, may another take his place. May another take his place. And there are words again of the anointed of God. I think it's a bit like this. I think that God's anointed, God's chosen king, is he's praying something like this in his suffering. He's saying, God, I will know, I will know that you have heard me and that you have approved of my death 
if you completely usurp and replace the one who's betraying me. That will be proof, that will be vindication that you approve of me. And so it is that um, replacing Judas has the purpose of proving that God has vindicated Jesus. That's why the job description of this new apostle has already been written. It's already been written in the psalm in a sense. This replacement will be the proof that God has vindicated Jesus. And what's the proof that he's vindicated him? It's his resurrection. And that is exactly why this new apostle has one job, to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. So verse 21, Peter says it's necessary. It's the same verb that Luke uses for the fulfillment of Scripture. It's necessary. It has to happen. It's in God's plan. He has answered his anointed, and now it must be proven. Verse 21, it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Verse 22, beginning from John's baptism, when when Jesus, if you like, publicly entered the scene to the time when he was taken up, the episode we finished with last week, his ascension. And just as the anointed of God cried, look, I know that you will prove that I am honored by you when you replace the one who betrayed me. Well, we see the job description is where men cursed him, God has blessed, and the proof of that is that they are a witness to his resurrection. God has, has raised him. So do you see this, this focus, and we'll see it all through the book of Acts, on Jesus' resurrection, being a witness to his resurrection. It's all important. And we might think, well, why particularly the resurrection? You could have picked all sorts of things. Why the resurrection? Well, I think it is that um, not just at the practical level, so, for example, everybody knew about Jesus' death, just as they knew about Judas's messy end. They knew about Jesus' death, that he was handed over and publicly executed. They all knew that. There needed to be a, a witness to his resurrection. Fewer people had seen that. He'd appeared to a good number, over 500 on one occasion. But the resurrection was, more importantly, the proof, if you like, that God said yes to Jesus, that he approved of his death, that he embraced his death. He embraced everything about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was on an upwards trajectory to the throne of the whole world. And his resurrection says that in a nutshell. So it's very important that this new apostle is a witness to his resurrection. So verses 23 to 26, let's finish the story. They proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Eustace, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. He was added to the 11 apostles. Well, the point of these verses is certainly not to make your decisions by casting lots. Some people, I think, uh, will use this passage as justification for that. But no, the point in these verses is, is that God is replacing him. And someone might say, well, if that's a guarantee that guaranteed means God uses, why can't I use it to steer decisions in my life, to, to be sure that God approves of it? Well, no, the reason here is that it's a unique event. It never happens again. The apostles never do it again. It's a one-off event because it's been a one-off betrayal. It's a one-off replacement. And it's very important that God does it. It's very important that God chooses. Because remember, God has to answer his anointed. God has to replace this traitor. And so um, it is God who ultimately fills the place. 
God before whom all hearts are, are known and open who chooses this new apostle. Well, as we, uh, as we close, I, I want to mention one more thing about how this is very powerful for us, about how that the removal of stigma from Jesus Christ, his resurrection to honor, is, is to transform and to change us. We've already seen that, that his death now is not to be seen as something of shame, because God has embraced it, approved of it. We're to embrace and approve it, receive it as salvation. But we're also to know how to testify to this Jesus Christ. Now, of course, these apostles, they're unique. This replacement of this apostle is unique. If someone tells you they're an apostle, you, you know they're lying. There are only 12 apostles. They're the special witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. But there's a sense in which the whole church testifies as a witness to Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. And that'll be true of us as well. But a passage like this does something very strange to human beings. It does very, something very strange to them that you begin to see as you go through the book of Acts. There's one episode in a few chapters' time, in chapter 5, where the apostles are before the Sanhedrin, and they're being questioned, and in the end they're beaten. But when they leave, there's something, we're told something very remarkable. We're told that when they're beaten, when they suffer disgrace, they count it worthy. They count themselves worthy. They rejoice that they're worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. You see, from a passage like ours today, they grasp that if Jesus' suffering is honored by God, then suffering for the name of Jesus is also equally honored by God. It is honorable. Where the world wants to call it shame, God calls it honor. And they reach that marvelous point, that remarkable point, by taking hold of the kind of things we've been reading about and thinking about this morning. And at the end of the day, the world will have no answer to that. So there's a very wise old man, Gamaliel, in the same chapter, who's, uh, who's asked, what are we going to do about these upstarts? You know, they're, they're changing the world. We can't stop them speaking about Jesus and his name. And he says, well, look, people often rise up. You, you often get a revolutionary who comes up, and, and he'll gather a hundred or a few hundred people around them. But then when he dies, that's fine. They all disperse. Because when a leader dies, look, that's defeat. And everyone disperses. But he says, if these guys keep going, their leader died, if these guys keep going, well, well, that's probably a sign that God could even be behind it. And that is precisely what this makes Christians. It makes them world beaters, if you like. Because what can you do to someone if you, if you heap all the shame and dishonor on them that you think you can, and they rejoice in it, they count it worthy. And they know that their future, their resurrection, honor from God is certain. Well, what can you do to stop them? There was nothing could be done to stop the apostles or the early church, or indeed us if we follow Jesus of Nazareth. And we take hold of this. And God has proved to us this morning that he's removed shame from the head of Jesus and bestowed honor on him instead. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you answered Jesus Christ. Thank you that uh, you answered him in the midst of his suffering, that you didn't allow him to stay dead, that you raised him to life. Thank you, Father God, that uh, as you've raised him to life, he is now able to give uh, people an inheritance to make new heirs. 
that unlike Judas, um, many people can say that they are his offspring, his children. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.